I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of All Things Policy. I'm Winnie, Communications Manager at Takshashila and host for today. The Indo-Pacific Economic uh, Framework for Prosperity, or the IPEF, was launched by U.S. President Biden on 23rd May 2022. And most recently, the third IPEF ministerial meeting was held in San Francisco on 14th November 2023. IPEF is the first formal articulation of a rules-based trade and economic framework for the Indo-Pacific region and aims to set uh, regional rules for effectively addressing a variety of contemporary and new generation trade and economic issues. This episode will look at the basic principles of IPEF, the story behind its formation, its relevance, particularly for India and its future. Hosting this episode with me is my colleague uh, Kripa Koshi. Kripa is a program manager for the postgraduate program in public policy here at Takshashila. As a guest for today, we have with us Ms. Ramita Ayer, who is a research analyst at the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore, where she focuses on trade and geopolitical developments in the Indo-Pacific region. Ramita holds a Master's in International Affairs from the National University of Singapore and a Bachelor of Arts Honours in Political Science from Delhi University. Hi, Ramita. Hi, Vinny and Kripa. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. Uh, so maybe we could start with a brief overview of what uh, IPF is, what this framework stands for, and also a bit uh, on the negotiations. So for example, on the supply chains agreement that was signed in November 2023. So uh, could you maybe discuss such negotiations and the outcomes so far? Sure. So like you mentioned, the IPF was an economic initiative that was launched in May 2022. Now, when this was announced, the, it, it came with the stated aim of advancing resilience, sustainability, inclusiveness, economic growth, fairness, and competitiveness of the member economies. It consists of 14 countries. So it has uh, Australia, Brunei, Fiji, India, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, New Zealand, Philippines, Singapore, South Korea, Thailand, the US, and Vietnam. So it has a diverse grouping, as you can see, of different countries from South Asia, from Southeast Asia, as well as the larger Asia-Pacific region. What's noteworthy is that the IPF actually marks the first re-engagement of the US with the Indo-Pacific region five years after the US administration under Trump withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the TPP in 2017. Now, this framework has four pillars around which uh, negotiations have taken place. Uh, these are trade, supply chains, clean economy, and fair economy. Um, the trade pillar, and I'm not, I'm not listing. This is not exhaustive, but um, the trade pillar has issues like labor, environment, digital economy, and agriculture. Supply chain, the supply chains pillar looks to establish criteria for critical goods and uh, sectors, increase resilience, strengthen supply chain logistics. 
The Clean Economy Pillar, which is the third one, focuses on energy security and transition, greenhouse gas emissions reductions in priority sectors, as well as sustainable use of land, water and ocean resources. The last pillar on fair economy looks at issues related to anti-corruption, tax, capacity building and innovation, as well as cooperation among the member countries uh, for greater transparency. You also spoke about the negotiations. So through seven rounds of negotiations that have taken place since the IPF's announcement in 2022, as well as you know three ministerial meetings and a number of senior official meetings, negotiations have been concluded for three of the four pillars of the IPF. Now, these include the supply chains pillar, which has included the establishment of an IPF supply chains council, a supply chains crisis response network, as well as a labor rights advisory board. The clean economy pillar has the IPF catalytic capital fund, the IPF clean economy investor forum, as well as a global climate climate fund. On the fourth pillar on fair economy, there's going to be a regional anti-corruption hub that will be established in Southeast Asia. And there's also plans for a funded program that will be implemented by the UNODC. So maybe next we can move to the context in which um, IPEF came about. So what do you think was the reason behind the formation of IPEF? I mean, there have been other mega regional agreements like IPEF in the past. So what is it that makes IPEF different and stand up from other frameworks? So I think to get a sense of this, we need to go back about 20 years or perhaps even a bit if a bit further, actually, to 1995, uh, when the WTO was established. With, to respond to what were then new age economic issues. Uh, but we've seen in the years after that its progress has fallen short of addressing multiple issues relevant to contemporary trade. So this is what gave rise to the mega regional FTAs, you know, like you mentioned, because these weren't be, these were seen as an important mechanism to forge trade integration uh, between the interested countries. A modern FTAs, which are being uh, signed in the 21st century, are emerging to be more about facilitating economic interdependence through the coordination of rules that regulate production and trade, including behind-the-border regulations. Now, what this means is that traditionally, trade agreements focused on uh, issues on, on policy issues that were at the border, which meant custom duties, tariffs, and trade facilitation surrounding that. But with the emergence of mega regional agreements, the focus went behind the border. So you look at, uh, and these are called deep FTAs, where it uh, the purview moves beyond into domestic regulation. So these include issues like labor, environment. So in this way, the agreements attempted to offer nations the opportunity to gain from the economies of scale and have comparative advantage. In this context, we saw CPTPP, RCEP being signed, which have wide coverage and also include a mul multiple of these new age economic issues. But the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and subs uh, subsequent developments after that have impacted the overall outlook on FTAs globally. The rapid growth of digital transactions and digital trade, the need for de-risking critical supply chains, making trade aligned to the goals of sustainable development and decarbonization, as well as making trade more socially inclusive by ensuring gender parity, have raised doubts over whether existing mega-regional agreements and FTAs can adequately address these issues. So this actually gave 
rise to new kind of engagements beyond the traditional mega regional agreements one of it has been issue specific frameworks for for example the digital economy partnerships like the DEPA signed between uh, New Zealand Chile and Singapore or even bilaterals like the DEPA signed between Singapore and Australia we also saw that existing FTAs have been reviewed to respond to new newer challenges the third kind has been the emergence of non-traditional rules based frameworks which are premised on contemporary geographies which in this case is the Indo-Pacific where these are driving non-traditional economic engagement between countries so this is a long winded answer to the context but i but i hope it it benefits your listeners thanks so much for that ramtha i think you've sort of laid a really good uh foundation for us to go even a little bit deeper in uh in the on the subject rather of of ipf um so maybe if you don't mind elaborating for some of our listeners why do you think you know the ipf uniquely matters if you could go a little bit more into uh what you see as some of the you know distinct features of the ipf and then even touching on you know the broader context in which a lot of these economic developments are happening sure i think well first is the coverage so if you look at the member countries that are part of the ipf they span across different regions we have countries that are from south asia southeast asia as well as the larger indo pacific region like i mentioned earlier but this grouping also includes major economies emerging economies economies with which the us already has fdas as well as others for whom this would be the first uh, economic negotiation with washington in terms of population they represent more than 30% of the world population in terms of economic size the ipf consists of four of the 10 largest economies of the world and accounts for more than 40% of global gdp also to, to situate it within the broader regional landscape uh, the two mega regionals that i mentioned earlier cptpp and rcep you know they are they are distinctly distinct from the ipf in in certain ways which i will elaborate when i go into the features so but just to give a at this stage just to give a, a general sense of the regional environment within which the ipf is coming we see that the framework has a larger scope in terms of both population and gdp when you compare it to cptpp and rcep i think the the most distinguishing features of the ipf which is one of the main reasons why it matters is that is that it does not offer market access Our traditional free trade agreements like rcep and cptpp are all about direct market access for those who are part of these agreements but the ipf has avoided discussions on the contention contentious issues of tariffs as well as rules of origin right from the beginning the focus instead has been on resilience and trade facilitation it also does not require congressional approval in the us to go through it it is being passed as an executive order so you don't really have the backing authority in the us to make this an an enforceable binding agreement the ipf has also adopted modular approach to negotiations which means that each of the four pillars that i mentioned which is on trade supply chains clean economy and fair economy so these are being treated as standalone agreements which means that members are offered sufficient flexibilities to leave or take standards now here again it departs from traditional free trade agreements where every single item on every single uh, clause has to be agreed upon between each and every member that's a part of it and the it's it's very common that these negotiations get stalled for several weeks and months because not all negotiators are on the same page regarding particular sensitivities for them 
Now, the IPF has conveniently put aside this by treating each of the pillars as separate agreements in themselves. I think the third distinguishing feature is because of its focus on on new age economic issues. So these are actually called the WTO X features, so, which means that these are provisions on some policy areas in economic agreements that fall currently outside the mandate of the World Trade Organization. But, you know, we're, we're still seeing countries actively in their FTAs or uh, on both bilateral, on, on both the bilateral level as well as the regional level, working with other countries on these issues. So this would include agriculture, labor, environment, and taxation, all which are extensively covered within the mandate of the IPF. I think what's also important is to look at the broader geopolitical context. Like I mentioned earlier, the pandemic has shown countries the need for de-risking and diversifying their supply chains. And this has also been undoubtedly a big motivating factor for the IPF itself. And I think this is also an attempt of the U.S. trying to get over the shadow of it leaving from the TPP in 2017 and uh, showcase its renewed commitment to the region. And so in this regard, the IPF cannot be seen in isolation because it's one of the several initiatives by the U.S. to redefine its economic partnership agreements in its uh, immediate neighborhood and beyond. For instance, there's the Mineral Security Partnership, which is an initiative to bolster uh, critical mineral supply chains with key partner countries. So this includes Australia, Canada, Japan, Korea, Sweden, the UK, the EU, and India, importantly, has also recently joined this partnership. So I think it's it's also important to look at the IPF in the background of the other economic agreements that are being negotiated in tandem. Yeah, that's really, I think, useful context uh, for us to hear, Ramitha. And I think it leads well maybe into the next question that we had for you, which was... Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Now that you've sort of set the the scene for us on some of the geopolitical context that's allowed for the IPF to develop, I think a, a pertinent question then would be, you know, how do you see the IPF being relevant for India in particular? So I think during the launch of the IPF, there was varying levels of enthusiasm among the member countries that had decided to be a part of the framework. But what was noteworthy was that the Indian Prime Minister, who was present at the launch in May 2022, was quite enthusiastic. In fact, he lauded it for its aim to make the Indo-Pacific an engine of global economic growth. He also indicated India's intentions of working closely with all the IPF members for ensuring its flexibility as well as inclusivity. I think it's important to note that the IPF comes at a time when time in India-US relations, where the government-to-government level of engagement between the two sides is perhaps as at its strongest. And one of the factors, of course, behind this has been the US-India comprehensive global and economic, global and strategic partnership. So India's motivation then appears to be primarily strategic, where some of the expectations uh, for India includes a potential shift of production set centers in critical sectors, a deeper integration within the global supply chains, a degree of mobilization of investments, as well as under the uh, Pillar 3, access to low-cost and uh, long-term climate finance. A number of important sectors for India are being covered. For instance, 
under the supply chain pillar, there is a unique bottom-up approach where countries are listing out their critical sectors, which is then being discussed and deliberated at the framework level. In this regard, the government, the Indian government has actually noted that this could contribute directly to a shift in production centers, which would then lead to an increase in the domestic manufacturing capability and, you know, thereby feed into the government's campaign of Atmanirbhar Bharat or self-reliant India. Just one more point here, I think uh, under the clean economy, India can also benefit from access to key goods and technology transfers in the critical sectors for environmentally sustainable development. And in the green hydrogen initiative that that has also been announced would help achieve India's goals in this regard. Thanks for outlining that, uh, Ramta. And I think it's really timely analysis from you, even as you know, listeners may have come across some analysis in mainstream media around how GOI's Ministry of Law and Justice is currently looking at proposals for the IPF's clean economy and fair economy pillars. So eventually we know that the process will move toward you know, even cabinet approval. And we've seen officials go on record to talk about how important these two pillars are for the country and the specific priorities really that those pillars represent in line with India's ambitions and aspirations for for economic development. So another question I had, Avanta, and it would be great to hear your thoughts on this, is some of the you know public language that we've seen from GOI's Ministry of Commerce and Industry um, making a point to specify that India has observer status on Pillar 1, which is the trade pillar of the IPF. So would you be able to sort of explain to our listeners a little bit more what could be some of the motivations for being a participant in the other three pillars, so that would be the supply chains, clean economy, and fair economy pillar, but choosing to take observer status in the trade pillar. I think that would be useful for our listeners. But then also, if you could elaborate on any other relevant commentary on that subject. Sure. So I think, you know, this uh, India's decision to opt out of the trade pillar right from the beginning is an extension of uh, one of the features of the IPF that I mentioned earlier, which is that Negotiations were conducted on a modular basis where each pillar was treated as a standalone agreement. So like you mentioned, India is a part of pillars two, three, and four, but has stayed disengaged from pillar one right from the beginning. Or like you mentioned, the public language is that they have observer status. So India's decision might have been motivated by its general hesitation to negotiate on new generation sensitive trade issues like that of labor standards and cross-border data flows, especially since its own domestic regulations are yet to be fully institutionalized in these areas. So what this would mean is that if India chooses to engage on these subjects in the absence of adequate domestic regulations, it would be accepting the default, default choice of being a standard taker in this regard, which means that countries that do have strong domestic regulation will set out the norms, the rules, the standards, and countries that don't uh, have this in place will just have to accept it. So this is really not an appealing proposition for countries to be in. And I think it this is the primary driver behind India's decision to stay out of uh, pillar one on trade. But nonetheless, I think it is an opportunity for India to be at the table. So if you see India is not a part of uh, CPTPP, and India quite infamously did not go through with the signing of PRCEP after several years of deliberations. So I think the IPF offers India a chance to play a part in the shaping of global rules and standards in the Indo-Pacific region. So I think this is also in line with India's economic engagement over the past years. So just in 2022, we saw 
that India concluded an FTA with Australia, the Australia-India Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement, another one with UAE, the Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. And you know, you might have seen in the news right now, India is currently negotiating FTAs with uh, EU and the UK. And in the UK FTA, the round 14 of the negotiations took place beginning just last week. And both sides are anticipating that concrete outcomes will be present, will be arrived at by October this year. So I think this is in line with India's economic engagement where, you know, there has been a renewed commitment for FTAs and engaging bilaterally with several countries, both in India's neighborhood as well as beyond. And it sort of shows that such engagements are important from both an economic as well as a strategic perspective. I think this has been really, really interesting for us to hear from you, but I, I think it would be great to hear even just the broader perspective of beyond now its relevance for India, as we've just discussed. It would be helpful, I think, to hear where you think the IPEF is headed. You know, even as you mentioned previously, there is a particular novel approach that the IPEF has taken. So does that sort of set some precedence insofar as other types of economic agreements in the future? Um, and then even if you could unpack a little bit for us, when you mentioned in passing the U.S.'s involvement in all of this, you know, we know that there are the 14 partner countries that are involved here, but it seems like the U.S. has taken quite a strong sort of leadership role in helping advance developments on the IPEF. So uh, if you wouldn't mind maybe touching on, on those two points for us. So I think broadly by dropping discussions on market access, the the IPF has actually confused trade, traditional trade watchers to a certain degree because it, the framework seeks to make rules on trade and cross-border business, but without deliberating on market access itself and without calling it an FDA. Now, you know, Biden administration did articulate the framework as a 21st century economic arrangement for 21st century economic problems. But whether countries fully subscribe to such a template is still questionable. A new generation trade issues like labor and environment have encountered major negotiating roadblocks uh, in structured FTAs in the past. And these have arisen primarily because of economic heterogeneity and differences in the regulatory systems among members. And several members have comparative advantages in production that is derived from their higher efficiencies in using domestic labor. But accepting certain labor standards top down in these uh, situations can imply that countries end up losing out on their productivity and efficiency. Similarly, regulations proposed for environmental sustainability as well might be costly and inefficient for many developing country members. So the extent to which they end up taking the standards that are given to them and implementing them domestically to be a part of this framework is something that we will have to see. From a geopolitical perspective as well, counterbalancing China has been a bit of a tightrope for countries, for several IPF members actually, who despite being defense allies of the U.S. and their strategic partners, prefer to stay out of the U.S.-China competition because of their larger national interests. And this has also been visible in their engagement with the IPF, which is not directly a strategic partnership, but as any economic initiative goes these days in the international domain, there is a strong geopolitical interest for each of the members participating in it. On your question regarding the U.S. leadership, I think um, it's it's firstly the structure that's being followed by the U.S. government itself is quite interesting to note because the IPF negotiations uh, were being led by 
two different departments. One was the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, for which looked at Pillar One, and the remaining three pillars were being were under the U.S. Department of Commerce. There's also considerable speculation now over whether the U.S. would stay committed to the IPF in the event that the Biden administration is voted out of office. Envisioning a TPP-like scenario unfolding for the IPF is a worry for both stakeholders within the U.S., but also across the various member countries. But I think the political as well as commercial stakes that are involved in a rules, rules-based framework like the IPF signals that in some form or the other, it, it is here to stay because the costs uh, that are involved in making a substantial process like this would otherwise get crippled for many years to come. Thank you, Amitha. And maybe if I could just ask a, a question that I'm personally curious about is, you know, you, we listed previously the the many partner countries in the region that are a part of the IPEF. Do you anticipate or see any of those countries sort of stepping up to play a bigger role? I mean, participating and and sort of, I don't mean to frame it as maybe competing with how the U.S. is sort of pushing that leadership role, but you can see as being a strong voice in shaping how the IPF is developing. Is there some speculation you'd like to share on that regard? So I think there's definitely a role for the middle power countries within the initiative to step up. I mean, those that have the capacity as well as just the capability within the grouping to be able to take on a better, a larger position. And this was actually the case in, in for the TPP. When the US exited, we saw Japan and other countries actually play a bigger role and then transform it into the CPTPP that we have today. So I think there's definitely a space for middle power countries that by and large have better clarity in their standards to be able to take on a better role within the framework in the event that we don't, in the event that we see US commitment wavering in the months to come. Yeah, that was really helpful analysis, I think, for us, Aramta. Thank you. Um, so I think we're coming toward the tail end now of our episode, and, and we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, so maybe even as we conclude, I'll just turn things over to back to Winnie, um, to end with uh, with her question. Yes, so I was reading your paper on IPF that you were for ISAS, um, very interesting by the way, and there you mentioned how uh, there have been differing approaches towards the framework, right? So while uh, Southeast Asian countries have been cautiously optimistic, as you call it, you mentioned that countries like India have been enthusiastic about this initiative. So despite these differences, uh, do you see IPF being a success story and perhaps uh, creating a pathway for similar initiatives for these countries to work together? I think, you know, despite all the criticisms that we read about the IPF, it's undeniable that the framework is focusing on issues that are preoccupying discussions on global trade and as well as business policy and regulations. And this could be ranging from labor, environment, trade facilitation and competition policy in pillar one or resilient supply chains, energy security and sustainable solutions as well as anti-corruption and taxation practices in pillars two, three, and four. So apart from the coverage that the IPF offers, I think given the current fragile geostrategic climate where US US China tensions persist and there are two major conflicts in the world that are going on right now, and a general appetite that has developed among countries to diversify their supply chains and de-risk 
it is likely that they commit further through non-traditional frameworks like the IPEF. But beyond the IPEF itself, I think there is also a possibility that countries might work on a bilateral basis like they have through you know, certain chapters in FTAs earlier. But I think there is also a real possibility that they might just engage with each other bilaterally on just issues that are WTOX and are not the traditional uh, trade issues like that of tariff reduction and market access. I think India also, which is looking to play a more active role globally in this regard, is likely to stay committed to this process. Thank you so much, Ramita. Uh, so we have come to the end of the episode. On behalf of my co-host Kripa and uh, Dr. Sheila, I'd like to thank Ramita once again for agreeing to be a part of this episode and for sharing her valuable insights on IPEF. We look forward to hosting you again. Thank you. Thanks, Ramita. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.